You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The movie is Love Actually, which came out in 2003 and was directed by Richard Curtis. Throughout the years, working title films and writer Richard Curtis have captured the euphoria, hysteria, and humiliation of love with the films Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary. Christmas is the time to be with the people you love. Yeah, I need a car. This holiday season. This is Natalie. Here. All you need. Oh. Hello. Is love actually? Are you seeing carols? Yeah. I suppose I could. He's It stars Hugh Grant, Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Laura Linney, Martine McCutcheon, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Kira Knightley, Andrew Lincoln, Colin Firth. Rowan Atkinson, Heike McCotch, Chris Marshall, Bill Nye, Martin Freeman, Joanna Page, Rodrigo Santoro, Thomas Brody Sangster, and Liam Neeson. <laughs> it's quite a, quite a cast. The genre would be holiday romantic comedy. Love Actually. Love Actually provides a 140-minute answer to the very simple question. How do you craft a romantic comedy which is rarely romantic nor funny? <laughs> Writer-director Richard Curtis... He showed us the way back in 2003 with this star-studded, R-rated version of a Hallmark holiday rom-com. Though he certainly provided hints along the way there with his clunky screenplays, in my opinion, for a couple of the most popular romantic comedies of the 90s, Notting Hill and Four Weddings and a Funeral, which are two films which almost worked, at least as far as I was concerned, thanks to the charms of Hugh Grant, who played the male romantic lead in both of them. Unfortunately, the female leads in those films played by Julia Roberts and Andy McDowell, they weren't written to be charming, or even appealing for that matter. So much to the point where you kind of felt sorry for Grant's character in both films, more so in Notting Hill even, where he almost feels like a nice guy just seeking out heartbreak. At the very least, though, the female leads in those films were given some agency, even while they were being unpleasant. Well, this time around, Curtis took that even further, because almost every female character not only has no agency, but they are all demeaned again and again and again. It says a lot that the only female character who was somewhat in control of her fate in this movie, and not just waiting helplessly for some goofball to make some grand bombastic gesture of stalking her to sweep her off her feet, because that happens many times in this movie, is a mild-mannered porn actress who spends most of her screen time naked on an absurdly grandiose porn set being railed by the object of her affection. How sweet and clever. Hugh Grant leads this cast as a newly elected British Prime Minister. We don't actually feel sorry for his character this time around. Nope, he's charming for sure, but he's also a passive-aggressive lout who lusts after one of his assistants and then demands that she be transferred somewhere else after an awkward incident when the visiting U.S. president harasses her. <sighs> Sigh. That's just one, quote, romantic running plot, which is resolved later on by him stalking her 
immediately followed by her apologizing to him for said harassment incidents. Oh, and the assistant is played by the movie star gorgeous Martine McCutcheon, really lovely actress, who was 15 years younger than Grant at the time of filming, at least, and whom every other character refers to throughout the movie as chubby, herself included. Did Bill O'Reilly write this? <laughs> they don't read stuff into this. It's just a weird personality thing. But um, you know Natalie, who works here? The chubby girl. Who would we call her chubby? I think there's a pretty sizable ass there, yes, sir. Huge thighs. Yeah. But whatever. Um, I'm sure she's a lovely girl, but I, I wonder if you could... Um, redistribute her. It's done. And there is one kind of interesting story with one pretty strong performance by Emma Thompson. We watch how she subtly maneuvers through the stages of realizing that her husband is having an affair with a secretary who does nothing but make the moves on him. Now, the husband is played by the late, great Alan Rickman, who is also giving a better performance than this movie deserves. And the secretary is played by Heike McCotch, who is, well, let's say she's going for it with her performance. She's literally sitting with her legs spread wide open while wearing a short skirt for half of her scenes when she's not strutting around in lingerie and other scenes. She's like the office temptress of Christmas past or something. Well, this all does lead to the film's most effective scene, though, where we watch Emma Thompson, who plays Rickman's wife, literally heartbroken as she listens to Joni Mitchell. It's a great performance in a great scene, but... God, that's a surprise. What is it? <laughs> it's a CD. Joni Mitchell, wow. To continue your emotional education. Yes. <laughs> Goodness. Well, that's great. My brilliant wife. Ah, yes. Actually, um, do you mind if I just absent myself for a second? All that ice cream. Uh, darling, could you make, just make sure the kids are ready to go? All right, no, I'll be back fine. in a minute. But it has to be sandwiched in between scenes of a dorky British dude, played cheekily by Chris Marshall, who's the poor man's Domino Gleason, who just can't fathom as to why he keeps getting rejected despite cheesy advances. That's his plot. He figures it has to be British women, since they're all stuck up. And his solution is to travel to America for Christmas, where he is convinced that women will flock to him because of his accent. And of course, in a scene immediately following the heartbreaking scene I just described, he's proven right when he ends up in a bar outside of Milwaukee, where he's invited by three Maxim cover girls. This was a thing back in 2003 to go back to their house for a threesome, as we hear Creed play triumphantly in the background. No, 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 listen. <laughs> this may be a bit pushy because we just met you, but why don't you come back and sleep at our place? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's not too much of an inconvenience. Hell no. <sighs> but there's one problem. What? Well, we're not the richest of girls, <laughs> you know, so we just have... A little bed and no couch oh. so you would have to share with all three of us yeah. and on this cold cold night it's gonna be crowded and sweaty and stuff yeah and we can't even afford pajamas what? which means we would be naked 
Now, I'm guessing that this whole sequence could be meant as satire, maybe. But then why is it edited right alongside the deadly series sequence featuring Emma Thompson? Richard Curtis, the writer-director, he clearly had some hetero rejection shit that he was working out at the time. Because once again, the through line is clear in this story. Women only exist in this world to be stalked, to sleep around, and or be demeaned if they choose to not sleep around. Now, there are some funny moments, one of them coming from Rowan Atkinson, of all people, in a department store. But most of the humor is just mean-spirited. And it's pretty much overwhelmed by scene after scene after scene of rom-com cliches. Airport chases, barging into restaurants, falling into lakes, giant cue cards presented behind a husband's back. And all of it is punctuated by a repetitive, overly cutesy score from Craig Armstrong, who is the composer. The score, in a few moments, is always there to remind us with a few perky orchestral notes that what we're watching is romantic, damn it! It's romantic! Can't you hear that? That's what the score's telling us. I'm in love. Sorry? I know I should be thinking about mom all the time, and I am. But the truth is, I'm in love. And it was before she died, and there's nothing I can do about it. I almost have to wonder if Curtis, the writer-director, was going for something more subversive here. You know, maybe trying to poke fun at rom-coms or something. But, nah, even that doesn't track because he bookends this epic with two extended cloying sequences of folks reuniting at the airport and with a ham-fisted voiceover during the opening, which genuinely sets the tone for the wrong-headed shit show that follows. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. This was barely two years after the 9-11 attacks, mind you. And I'm still at a loss all these years later as to what the point was of invoking them. F this movie. Seriously, love is literally the last thing that comes to mind when the credits start rolling. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Sometimes it could even be the most redeeming aspect of a film. Now, Hugh Grant does have one fun sequence dancing around his house to the radio playing. The song is Jump For My Love by the Pointer Sisters. In case you didn't know, the Pointer Sisters were a pop group from the 80s, which provided many a good needle drop through the years, with peppy pop jingles, including I'm So Excited and Neutron Dance. And with this sequence, they deliver once again, as we first see Grant with his back to us, facing the window. And as the music kicks in, hips swaying, arms pointing, and then we see him strutting his stuff all over 10 Downing Street to the song. What can I say? I'm just a sucker for celebratory dance sequences. So here's one for our ass-kicking Prime Minister. I think he'll enjoy this. A golden oldie for a golden oldie. Oh, my God. 
That brings me to the next category, which is wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Oh boy. (laughs) You know I have found that so many times, this particular category can seem a bit thankless. Trying to zero in on some talented cast member who's just not given quite enough to do, often within an otherwise good movie. But every once in a while, a film comes along which this category was just made for. And Love Actually is that movie. Seriously, just take your pick here. It's a literal smorgasbord of talented, mostly British actors playing generally unlikable characters, hamming it up for sequences featuring romantic gestures, often stolen from better movies. So instead of just picking one, I will instead rank the top five most demeaned actors, thanks to Mr. Curtis's screenplay and direction. Let's count them down, shall we? Number five, Andrew Lincoln. Yep, we get to see him in that now iconic moment, playing a loner photographer slash videographer who stands outside of his best friend's home. It's a cold, snowy night, and he knocks on the door, and who answers but Kira Knightley, playing the wife of his best friend, who he has secretly been in love with, and has also filmed hours of footage of, no less, during their wedding. Just of her. In a moment that has now become iconic, and really it's been parodied everywhere, he busts out the cue cards, declaring his love for her, with her husband inside unaware of this. This is a woman he has been mostly brusque with up until this point, and who has barely spoken with. This is 100% stalker behavior here. But how romantic! Apparently, in interviews since this film came out, Andrew Lincoln, who's now the star of Walking Dead, has said that he was never really comfortable with this scene, and he even raised concerns to the director that this character's behavior was just way too stalkerish, that this scene would play more as creepy than romantic. Apparently, those concerns were met with deaf ears. Number four, Emma Thompson. As I already said before, she gives her all during those moments of heartbreak only to see them paired up with scenes watching one of our scrawny British protagonists living out his porn fantasies in America. These sequences feel like they are out of completely different movies. Just true cinematic malpractice. Number three, Liam Neeson. He plays a recent widower who lost his wife to cancer. And God forbid the screenplay or any other character even allow him one moment to actually be able to mourn his wife, who just died. Nope. His character is mocked for crying in one scene and even told by his sister that, quote, nobody will want to shag him if he keeps it up like this. But then when he sometimes does come out, it's it's obvious he's been crying. It's just a ridiculous waste. And now if it's going to ruin Sam's life as well. I just don't know. Get a grip. People hate sissies. No one's ever going to shag you if you cry all the time. And his entire subplot ends up revolving around his young stepson, obsessed with a classmate whom he has never actually spoken with. So he's just there to literally endure hearing his bratty son drum for hours on end because his son wants to perform in the holiday concert with this girl who he's in love with, who he hasn't spoken with. She's the singer. Oh, and to drive the kid to the airport to chase her down before she flies to America. Liam Neeson is genuinely good in this movie, despite the bizarrely thankless directions that his character is taken in. Number two, Laura Linney. Now, the less said about her subplot, the better. But let's just say that she has to endure her creepy boss lecturing her on her sex life, constantly being verbally abused over the phone by her mentally challenged brother, 
And then in a moment when she's finally alone with the object of her affection, it's continuously interrupted by phone calls from said brother, but not without her character being shown topless in bed for several minutes. Look, I'm not trying to sound prudish here. It's not really about the nudity. It's just more about the bizarre sequence of events surrounding it. And number one, and this really shouldn't be a surprise, I'm not even going to relitigate all the stuff that she's been through. It's Martine McCutcheon who plays the Prime Minister Hugh Grant's assistant, for all the reasons I listed previously. That brings me to the next category, which would be trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Okay, I'm going to go in a different weird direction here, but I think I have to. I honestly need to give some props to the folks at Screen Junkies and their YouTube channel. No moment nor scene which I can cite from this movie could possibly top their very own honest trailer for this very movie which came out seven years ago. It's a historically spot-on takedown of this movie and one of their best. And I will also include a link in the show notes. Follow along on this Pulp Fiction for Girls stuffed with eight different plot lines that are creepy and depressing when you actually stop to think about them. And that brings me to the final category, which would be MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. If nothing else, because he was able to craft a movie which was able to elicit such a visceral reaction from me, I have to give this award, I have to give this award to Mr. Romance himself, Richard Curtis. After rewatching this and having it push just so many of my buttons, I felt the need to do my typical YouTube deep dive looking for interviews with this guy because I was just so curious, expecting to have the same visceral reaction to watching him talk about the making of this movie. And guess what? The dude is just so British and unassuming and, dare I say, likable. It's strange because with some directors, your Michael Bays, your Lars von Triers, even my beloved James Cameron, you could just tell off the bat with interviews or even any behavior they have that they have a true propensity for dickishness. But not Curtis. As utterly misguided as his creation was to me, he seems from all accounts to be a good dude, a well-intentioned family man who, to his credit, directed a movie that is beloved by many. This film was a sizable worldwide hit and received pretty solid reviews when it came out in 2003. It made almost $250 million on a $40 million budget and against some huge competition at the time, including Elf and Return of the King. And it's become a perennial holiday season rewatch for many since then. So he must have done something right in the eyes of a lot of folks, even though it just does not work for me. At the end of the day, this is his movie the movie he wanted to make, and everyone involved apparently had a joyous time working on it with him. So therefore, to quote the immortal words of Ice-T, don't hate the player, hate the game. Even though I certainly hated his movie, I cannot hate Richard Curtis, and he is the MVP. My rating for Love Actually is 0.5 stars out of 5. No, no, no. I'll leave it at that. And if despite listening to this review, you still want to watch Love Actually, it is available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another acrimonious review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.